welcome to the 16th bonus episode of The Dive Down. We are, of course, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual or not-so-casual card and video game spike. I'm Shane here in Denver, Colorado. With me on the line from L.A., and New York, two cities you might have heard of, uh, the hosts of Bad End Podcast, Kyle Cookstill. Kyle, 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 how do I say your last name? Really close enough, Cookstell. Okay, Cookstell and Josh Calixto. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. I'm glad to have you. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Well, I've wanted to get you two on the show for a few months now. I do think you are probably the best video game podcast out there. Some some thoughtful critics, <laughs> analytical no. minds. Exa- what, what's important though is you don't examine only video games. I think you you think a lot about and talk a lot about the culture and space that exists around games more broadly. And I think that there are a lot of parallels in the video game and the card game world. There's a lot of crossover, of course, between the audiences of both those types of gaming. And I thought having you two come on, provide a different perspective on games would be pretty awesome. I know you guys have played Magic in the past and other card games, right? Yeah. Yeah, I used to write about Hearthstone for Kotaku for like two years. That was like like the the biggest Hearthstone. He was like the Hearthstone Hearthstone beat. Yeah, I was in the Hearthstone writing community like this it was pretty tiny like once you get into this type of thing like once you start talking about a card game you you find the other people who do that thing and i was in that for a while so i uh i played pirate warrior there you go Mm, like (laughs) terrible (laughs) i'm a monster i'm a monster i was just thinking like josh was like the most boring version of like the french connection or whatever the new wes anderson movie is um like foreign correspondent, I forget what it's called. But Josh is like, I don't know. It's like esports reporter for Hearthstone. Sounds like it could be so cool, but you're just in your room, just <laughs> just clicking. Patch I went notes. to some tourneys. I went to some tournaments and stuff. You did go to some Life. tournaments, actually. Man. It's true. Yeah, those were always so attractive, like the environments in which people played. Yeah, it was once upon a time. <laughs> it's no longer a thing. Well, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about your engagement with card games later. But before we do get into the meat of the episode, I do want to thank the patrons of the Dive Down. They got us to the point where we're doing these bonus episodes. You're keeping us all going. Check out patreon.com slash the Dive Down if you want to get involved in our awesome community. You too have a Patreon as well, right? I don't don't want to leave you hanging there because I know that if people want to support you, where can they find you? Patreon.com slash bad end. We have a Discord. Uh, it's actually, it's called the Superculture Discord because we're part of a larger network of other podcasts, uh, publications, also independent, run by a bunch of uh, buddies and colleagues of ours. So uh, it, it's a cool community. Um, I, I would recommend it if if you dig what's happening here. There, here we have uh, our cardboard and Cheetos channel where we talk, <laughs> talk about board and card games, etc. Yeah, I've definitely I've hung out in your Discord. I've of course been on Patreon for a while, um, and yeah, it's a great it's a great community. Tell me a little bit more about Bad End and the Super Culture Network. Like, how did you guys get started in this space, and how have you developed your podcast and your network over the years? Oh man, I'll start for a little bit, and then I don't know, Josh, if you want to take it after. Um, so we, Josh and I, both met in New York when we were working for Killscreen. 
Um, we were both sort of writing for them and then I was doing some video work for them. Um, and then, and what, and what's kill screen for people who don't know. Yeah. For, we're not on a video game podcast. Um, <laughs> kill screen, uh, I guess, well is, and then was it, and now is again, uh, it was like a, I guess when we, when we were involved, it was more of a publication geared towards talking about games the way we talk about them on bad end. So generally the idea was like the intersection of games and culture. So it's not something that's just games focused. It would often look at games in sort of a larger cultural context. So we were kind of cut from that cloth. Um, and basically kill screen sort of fizzled out in the form that it was in then. And then, um, a lot of people kind of went off to do their own thing. And then I was talking to Josh and I was like, do you want to do a podcast? Um, cause Josh was doing a podcast at the time. I was interested in doing one. I knew Josh had had some experience. And then, um, also shout out to OG bad end co-host Katie McCarthy at the time was editor. I guess she left into being editor of us gamer. Um, but so we all decided to start the podcast just to, kind of like carry on, I think the voice of kill screen a little bit, but not, it wasn't explicitly like the mission, but I think taking a lot of the ways and ideas of stuff in that space and just carrying it forward in a podcast form, because uh, we talked a little bit before the show about your uh, motivations for doing the dive down. I think that there was a similar thing for us where we were just like, no one talks about games. Like we want to hear people talk about games. So like, let's be, that force. Um, and we did that for, I guess like almost two and a half years and then super culture started to happen. I don't know, Josh, if you want to take it from there. Yeah. I mean, so our bigger angle was that we were talking about games through that cultural lens and just comparing it to other media, like Shane, like you already mentioned, it's, it's more about doing these cross media comparisons because video games, and just games in general have this tendency to really segment themselves off off from other portions of society and art and culture in general when they do not exist in a vacuum. And um, we had friends who were at publications who were already thinking about games this way. We have um, our our friend Gareth Damian Martin, who's who founded um, this architecture and video games uh, zine slash online magazine called. Uh, heterotopias. We have our friends at Bullet Points, great uh, site for critical writing on video games. Funland, another online magazine. Um, so we we got everybody together, and uh, Superculture is is now a thing. We basically help each other, you know, promote what we're doing and just just stand for this like larger message of talking about video games in depth through this lens that is not exclusive. It's more welcoming. Uh, and and it's more tied into culture at large, which it, I think it should be in general, but it, it's just not something you can really find at a lot of other places. Yeah, I was, you know, not going to ask you to put anybody on blast or anything like that, but like, what do you think is missing in the world of games critique and games analysis that you know you all are trying to fill? Like, what's what's like the gap you're trying to fill exactly? Like, in terms of looking at games through a cultural lens, I think. My answer to that is just like context. And I think like external context outside of like knowing what the difference between dark souls and uh, I don't know, monster hunter is. I think it's, I think it's realizing that games are not like the whole existence of a game does not like start and stop with the marketing campaign that ends up producing the piece and like the key code that results in a review on a games website. 
so part of it for us, I think is just kind of contributing to the discussion. I think filling in a lot of the gaps, I think, uh, I mean, games criticism has a lot that it could do more. And I think that super culture, Josh alluded to this, but a lot of what we're trying to do is carve a space for this type of critical voice to exist and kind of be stronger together. But I think for bad ends specifically, definitely want to, uh, yeah, I think like just filling in the gaps, I think in the conversation, so to speak. Yeah. And then on top of that, just for bad end specifically, I don't, this isn't as much of a larger superculture thing, but talking about games as adults is, is a big <laughs> part of what we try to do. Um, obviously like we, we can still allow ourselves to get hyped up about things and to participate in the community drama and enjoy whatever's going on in the discourse at the moment. But there's a certain maturity that you get when you cross a certain age uh, that <laughs> a lot of people just, that just kind of doesn't exist in a lot of conversation about video games. I think having that is definitely important to what we do as well. For sure. And then I think too, just like that's also separate from, I know there's like other, um, there's like other entities that do, I, I'm, I'm not sure if these actually like, these are these specific names, but there's places that are like, I know there's like gamers with jobs or like dad gamers or like, you know, moms games or something where those things often just take the sort of gamer ethos and just apply it to a framework where you're an older person. So you're like, yeah. how can I like go buy my pop figures at GameStop? Well, I'm got to go pick up kids from daycare. And we're just like that, that can exist, but we're trying to say like, Hey, let's talk about, games like Josh said, like as adults, like let's take them sort of at their value and say, you know, this is what they're trying to do. This is what they're trying to do, what they're not trying to do, or what is or isn't happening with what they're trying to do with this stuff. And so mm -hmm. I think it's applying that like actual cultural critical framework to thinking about games. And this also sounds very pretentious, but I promise if you're interested in that and we are not a pretentious podcast, but I think it's, it's even just like taking a small step back from like just the hype, I think gives us a sort of certain, perspective that I think can be sort of illuminating and more fun. And like, I don't know, we, yeah. we love games and we hate games that like neither of us feel the need to like overly lap criticism for fear of like, you know, bleeding subscribers or something. Yeah. That's one thing that I have appreciated about your pod is that the viewpoint is sort of more holistic and it's kind of a really generic word, right? Which is like, but and, and when I'm thinking about it, it's just that I think you look at a lot of different angles of games and how they work and don't work as like game systems that also as pieces of culture and how they tie into, you know, what people are seeing and viewing and experiencing both as individuals and together. And I think that's something that's really important about card games as well. And about magic, which is like the engagement of people with magic is extremely multifaceted. And I think it's impossible to look at magic as a game alone one because it's like a you know 27 year old game system and it has an entire culture and framework built around it and i think sort of games do that as well because they have this huge history but also are individual pieces of you know output and before we lose everyone who's like, well, are these are these guys going to talk about magic at all? <laughs> I know that you two have you have played magic, you have played card games. Uh, what is what what what's kind of 
your history of engagement with magic and you don't have to fluff it up too much. Like if you played like when you were 15, that's all you got to say. That was me for like 19 years. Um, but you know, what, what do you, uh, what, what did you do with magic? Uh, I actually played magic this past weekend for Thanksgiving. (laughs) I play, I feel like my, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. My engagement with magic, I played magic online. So, I mean, I grew up in like a Southern South, I grew up in like South Georgia, like evangelical church territory. So magic was like kind of evil. So I didn't play it a lot growing up. Um, but then in college I started playing magic online a bit. Um, just like my, I don't know, my friend group got into it for like a month or whatever. And then when like, I don't know, do people call it MTGA? I don't know what like the official thing to say is, um, magic, the gathering arena. Like when that came out, uh, that was really big for me. So I mentioned this on bad end, but like, I think that arena arena for me, like really delivers on the, uh, like the conceit of what magic is of this idea of like sort of dueling sorcerers, especially with a lot of like the effects and stuff. And like, honestly, like arena is just a good video game, like on its own merits, not even just like a digital card game. Um, and so I, my engagement with magic is basically like I'll often get into arena. I'll play like consistently for two or three releases and then kind of dip out for two or three releases. Yeah. I have been there on arena. Yeah. So my last, like, I think my last thing I was really into, I guess, uh, and I was Eldraine might've been last one I was in, but then, but I also played the one where they had like the big monsters that sort of like the cards morphed into each other. Oh yeah. Ikoria. I think I played a Coria with, like, with a the evolve bit. mechanic. Yeah. And then I just started with the new Innistrad set and I'm thinking about building a deck around, um, it's the, it's like the, it's like a five black dragon zombie thing that like, sure. I don't remember what it's called, but I, I usually play white black decks and there's a lot of cool, like white black stuff. So I think that that's probably my next magic step. So it's, you are like the arena target market. It sounds like, like where you sort of like dip in, dip out, you'll maybe build like a standard deck or two Mm -hmm. and stay engaged for a while, drop a little cash on some packs type thing. And what about you, Josh? It sounds like, I know that you play more digital card games now. Uh, How, how much have you played magic in your past? Never really played it growing up. I was Growing up, I was more of like a weeb type than a <laughs> fantasy, like D&D type. Um, started getting more into that side of things in around college. But in college, it was like my friends mostly played D&D and I got into like board games and stuff like that. But never, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite, it never quite trickled over into Magic the Gathering territory. Um, but then I got really into Hearthstone, like when that beta dropped. And it was one of those things where like, I played a lot of League of Legends, heard a lot about Dota 2 and and Dota 1, I guess. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> played a lot of Hearthstone, heard a lot about Magic the Gathering. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> ultimately, when uh, Arena came out, I, I started getting Magic the Gathering Arena came out. I played quite a bit of that. I mostly played the draft mode. What is that? Sure. What's it called? It just draft. Just yeah, draft. yeah, I would play a lot of draft because the collecting part would take a lot longer for me. I did pretty well. I got, I got a couple max win drafts in. Um, I think a lot of the principles transfer over from Hearthstone, even though it's like um, oversimplification, oh, yeah. but like 
control. Like all, I, I read a lot about like just archetypes, how decks work. A lot of the mechanics are like grafted over from Magic the Gathering. So I was able to pick up on some of them. I think Magic the Gathering was a little bit more difficult for me to learn because there's a lot more nuance in the way that like the turn and phases are structured. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Priority passes back and forth a lot more. Yeah. And it's like what resolves before what is really difficult to know unless you've really looked at the rule book and played in real life, probably because one thing that we kind of take for granted about digital card games is that you can never just break the rule. Like you can never just do something that is mm-hmm. against the rules because the game will physically not allow you to do that thing or it'll work in a way that you weren't expecting to work and you'll be screwed. And sometimes <laughs> one of the bad things about digital card games is that you sometimes you just have to figure that stuff out through trial and error. Like, how does this interact with this card? And then you do it and it's just totally not the way that you thought it was going to work and you're screwed. So um, <laughs> I I learned a lot of Magic Gathering through losing. Um, <laughs> Don't we all? This, this, this is the dive down, my friend. Um, I, I figured out a little bit about how certain archetypes work, how certain colors are involved with certain archetypes, like what they do and stuff like that. Um, and it was, yeah, it was cool, cool to learn all that stuff. And it's, it's just a profoundly interesting game, mostly because of the amount of history that's behind it and the amount of ways that you can play the game, I think is the one thing that one of the things that magic has over pretty much any other existing card game. But I've got, I've since gotten really into um, Legends of Runeterra and I, I yeah, feel like as a digital card game, that one is for me, I've, I've, it's been all that. It's all been all Runeterra since, since then, but I, I do want to go back to magic. I have some cards I got through our bad end, <laughs> Uh, Superculture Discord Secret Santa last year someone got me oh, nice. a, a big thing of like old <laughs> older <laughs> magic cards from a couple sets ago and I just oh, haven't wow. had the chance to play with them yet because I don't have anyone to play magic with well right on well I mean it's it's awesome to you know look at different people's perspectives and ways that they engage with magic and games and I think that's kind of going to be a topic I want to talk a lot about more in a second but on these bonus apps, we typically have like a lightning round of magic-related questions that we call Inside the Grinders Studio. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to mix it up a little bit for you two. And we're talking about video games. And I really we have so much stuff I actually I really want to talk about. I'm going to say, please, let's like don't think about this too much. <laughs> and, and you don't you don't need to like you don't need to hedge or to be like, this is why. Just answer it. Because I just want to know what's your favorite game all time? Just what's your favorite video game? Uh, I think right now it's Dark Souls one. Right on. Um, you have a lot. Of, you have a lot of friends in the Magic community who would agree with you. <laughs> League of Legends. That's another fair answer. What's your least favorite game? Oh man, I hate Loop Hero. Right now, that's my. <laughs> that's my least favorite game. Like of all time. Not of. I'm just. You said off the cuff. And that's, oh, that's just, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I saw, I, I saw a I, list of the top games of 2021. I saw that game. And I was like, I hate that game. That game, I, that game makes me angry to play. I really didn't like it. I have to admit, Josh, least favorite game. I also really didn't like loop hero, but I'll say league of legends. <laughs> <laughs> it's like me and magic. It's my favorite and least favorite game. 
Okay, what's your favorite video game platform? Like you mean like console or PC? Yeah, like way to like yeah that you've ever played arcade, PC, console. I like um I like laying tabletop. on my back on the couch with a laptop on my belly, <laughs> parsect into my desktop playing a game with a controller and pl- <laughs> and playing Loop Hero. No, not <laughs> with a controller. Playing like Forza or something from like my computer on a couch while I'm laying down looking at a screen. PC. Yeah. PC. It's just like it's so flexible, mm-hmm. right? Can't beat it. Especially now. What's your favorite piece of video game slang or gaming slang? <laughs> is it frag, Josh? <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it pwned? Frustum calling. <laughs> What? What's that? It's like a tech term. Uh, I, I like teabagging. Just that's so, it's so. There needs it's to be so a tacky. version of teabagging in Magic Arena. I guess it's like calling GG before it, yeah, you. Yeah, just say yeah, GGs, GGs. Emoting just like spamming. That's pretty uh, BM. BMing. Yeah. yeah, BMing. Yeah, BMing is actually maybe my favorite piece of video game slime. I don't know because if I know it's what like BMing the, is bad manners it's a hearthstone thing okay you haven't heard bm like Kyle? i've never heard of that before yeah it's it's like yeah like emoting like rudely or prematurely or trolling bming wow BM. i learned something bad manners. it's bad manners it's bro. existed for a very long time but bad manners have bm <laughs> the- it's it's funny because like that's like magic got a lot of poker slang early on because mm. it's like from the 90s mm-hmm. and like so it's got like tilt and like outs and all that kind of stuff and i feel like the digital card games have sort of taken a lot from like hearthstone and stuff i've been watching a lot of chess recently and like <laughs> it's hilarious because there's there's been a big movement where a lot of people streamers are getting into chess and it's becoming yeah. like a big esport type thing but people are grafting esports slang onto chess <laughs> that already has like these very old terms for things. And like one of the things that you can do is like surround one of your one of your bishops with like pawns. And it's called like a fianchetto. And they started referring to it as a sniper house. <laughs> it's just the funniest thing ever. <laughs> it goes from fianchetto. A, a term sniper with house. culture and history, and they just call it a sniper house. No, sniper that's house. just that's just the bishop teabag. <laughs> that's so ridiculous. That's, this this is just such a good example of like you know crossover gaming culture. Like just like people want people want to engage with a game and like take along all of the the culture that comes along with stuff they already know, and like make it relevant to them, right? And I think that's what's. That's what's, I mean, that's what's interesting about like you brought up the chess streaming is I, I kind of forgot about that. Like, cause it's, it's been pretty in vogue. And like, I think like, you know, the streaming of it and the esport of it has definitely had to sort of, you learn what makes other esports work and tick and like what makes those cultures tick and what makes people engage with them. And they sort of like grafted on to like a perfect strategic game. This is, this is related to, I have this like theory that, it's not really a theory, but it's still kind of a theory, which is that like every single media platform goes through this, like uh, this, this moment of someone explains how to make a stake. Like it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a sign of like a certain platform maturity where some, some piece of content on that platform discusses how to make a stake. And like, it's something about like the, the format of a tutorial food like picture material kind of like shows the 
like the workings of what makes sense on the platform. So like the way you show how to make a stake on TikTok is like very different than how you show how to make a stake on Twitter or something. And I feel like it's sort of similar where these like, I don't know, something like chess has to kind of move through the cultural filter basically such that it can be on Twitch in a way where someone can teach chess on Twitch in a way that you wouldn't teach it. If you like, I don't know, you were watching a YouTube video or you were, um, learning about chess on Twitter or like even on like a forum post or something. It's like chess is like, I don't know. It's got the same kind of characteristic where everyone sort of knows how to play chess, but learning it in a way kind of reveals what is intrinsic to the platform that that chess thing appears on. And because it's been around forever, you can then kind of compare and say like, well, what does it mean to learn chess on Twitter versus Twitch versus TikTok or whatever? Yes. That's astute. I mean, cause it was, it makes me think like when I, I get, I get into games like a couple times a year. And what I mean by that is like a, like a new game, right? Like a whole new game system. And like what, so what it means to like learn and understand how like a dark souls work works or like how a new card game works like Terra or like a new card game, like uh, uh flesh and blood or something like that. Right. Where it's like, here is an entirely new world that you have to understand. And that could be chess and that could be anything or it could be like uh, Valorant, which is something I've tried picking up this year too. Right. And that learning experience and like either the hurdles that are in front of you or the doors that can be opened for you in terms of the educational experience, I think makes such a difference in terms of, I think getting into it fast and then sticking with it. Right. And, and that's kind of a side conversation. It's not exactly what I think what you were talking about, but it made me think about, the ease of accessibility and then like kind of like how, like how, er, how early your first plateau is, is like really important. I think for kind of at least my engagement with these kind of games and game systems and like game environments. And that kind of gets me to the next question too, which is like, what do you think makes audiences engage with games? Like in terms of like specific, like, like in terms of a new game or that comes out, like what makes people engage with a game or perhaps like gaming on the whole, like what, what about it is, is gra- it grasps people. Right now. I, I was actually just thinking about this not that long ago because right now Runeterra is in that weird mid mid phase where a expansion came out a, a while ago and like they're on the verge of announcing a new one and people are just kind of like falling off it. But we had this uh, expansion. There was this expansion in Runeterra uh, a while back where it was, there was this one deck that was just oppressive, intense, really annoying. A lot of the big streamers almost wanted to quit. It was the Azir Aurelia archetype for anyone who's ever played Runeterra. Um, but I, during that period, a lot of streamers just stopped streaming for a little bit because they were just like, I'm just, we're going to come back the next patch, fix it. We'll come back. But it made me think, you know, well, geez, balance is so important to the the health of a, of a video game and whatnot. But then it was like, now we have this era right now where the meta is generally agreed upon to be pretty good in Runeterra. But we're at the, again, at the end of that phase where a new expansion is just on the verge of being announced. And there's still like a, a relatively low amount of engagement with the game Publicly, at least, I, I don't know what the numbers are at, at a more generalistic level, but it, it's it makes me think like, what what's really going on here? I 
I, I feel like the real reason why people come back to games nowadays is for the novelty factor and just having new stuff to engage with, new, quote, content. I don't think that video games were always this way. I think that people used to be a lot better at getting their own experiences, extracting experience and, and quote, new content out of uh, experiences that were not patched, that didn't really change over time. But now that is part and parcel of the the entire experience is just this novelty factor. And I think that to me is what keeps audiences engaged in 2021, at least. No, I think that makes, that makes sense to me, but like I, it's, it's, I haven't thought about it in that fashion where it's like, like, how do you think that's different than gaming maybe 10, 15, even 20 years ago? I think, um, we, we talk about this a lot on bad end. Cause I think we're, when we're older for anybody who's listening, we're both like thirties. So I think that one thing that we really take for granted that like Josh and I are both employed, we have jobs like buying a video game is not like a huge thing for us where like, I don't know. I grew up like middle-class, like I got three video games a year or something, maybe on like a lot of like blockbuster rental stuff. Yeah. Like you, like you went and got like Bart versus the space mutants and you're like, I hope this is good. Yeah. Or, or like you did, um, they're like the free games were like America's army or something, right? Like there's like not, I think the one thing that we really, um, I think we continually discount not because that we're trying to like be, uh, I don't know. We're not trying to like specifically ignore it, but I think that the quality of what is free now is like insane. Um, and I think that the, the change has to do a lot. I mean, Runeterra is free, right? Like there's a lot of the change I think is the fact that people have, um, I I'm like, I'm not a huge believer in the concept of the attention economy, but I do think there is something salient there. The attention economy being this concept where there is like, I don't know, there's some limited number of 15 year olds who have some number of hours per week that they're going to do activities for. Uh, so this is how Netflix says that it is positioning itself to compete with like Epic for like Fortnite, blah, blah, blah. This is like boring business stuff. But part of that is that like, I think the engagement factor is it, there's a different sort of calculus now where if you're, if you have a game that's free, the, that also means that in a way, like you have sort of no sunk cost outside of your own time for continuing to engage with that. And not only that, that means you can kind of abandon that. If something else seems like it's more exciting, you know, even if you put hundreds of hours into a game the idea that some other game is coming out and like has some different cadence of content that you can sort of engage with because that's what's exciting. Like the whole premise of like streamers is that they're often playing new and exciting things. So you want to play the new exciting stuff so you can talk to your friends about the new exciting things that they're playing and blah, blah, blah. So I think what happens is that there's a different sort of, there's a lot, there's different forces that are more actively pulling you away from the thing that you're currently enjoying and would even tell you maybe that like you can't enjoy that because it's more exciting over here. And I think that's Josh is kind of alluding to this a little bit where I think there is a little bit of a grass is always greener mentality for people. And I think that the most, the most happy people that I perceive are the ones that actually just stick with the game forever. Like people who just play apex all the time or like destiny people who play destiny are, are insane. I don't know how they keep doing Sometimes it. Sometimes they're like the also, most miserable ones though. They're the most miserable, but can also be the most happy or like Josh is playing final fantasy 14. And he's like, listen, after 250 hours, it's the most transcendent experience I've ever had in my life. <laughs> yeah. 
And I think, I think it's like stuff like that, where I think this sort of the difference now is that I think maybe 10 to 15 years ago, those forces weren't pulling you in that direction. Whereas now to play something for 250 hours, you have to be actively saying no to shiny things um, yeah, in a way yeah, that is yeah. like, not just saying I won't spend $60. It's saying this new thing is out and I'm not going to, uh, it's, it's, it looks exciting. There's cool new content, new skin, whatever, but I'm not going to do that because I'm going to play this thing that like actually right now might be worse than that other thing. Yeah. I guess to ask a slightly different question is what makes a game good? So this is different because (laughs) it's, this is a hard one to answer because I think that you can still have a game that is good that is, that does not have being good as its primary goal, which is weird, but it's like, this is something that only really like comes into the frame when you're really engaging with the game at the deepest of possible levels. And I want to kind of tie this back in with magic um, and I guess competitive games in general right now, because we often look at the old days as this kind of like the ideal, right? You look, people look at Smash Brothers Melee as like the one of the pinnacles of competitive gaming. Um, and that, that, that's a game that never really got patched. It was like just something that came out and people, the meta would just constantly evolve because there was so much depth and people found these new ways to play the game and all this stuff. And that's what make, made it so good. And I was listening to this, uh, I was watching this stream of League of Legends the other day and you know someone was you know rattling off some design criticisms. This was like an old school streamer who has been in the game for years and years, really well respected in the community. And they were talking about how, you know, they don't really design the game these days uh, to to have features that are balanced and good and that are like really just you know high quality experiences and it's more about just doing something different or making an interesting design decision that is there to make the players say like oh this is such such cool design it's like design for design's sake. I, I would sort of paraphrase what they were saying, which is a really interesting thing because it's one of those things where you can play a game and be like, this design is really, really cool. But at the same time, really not enjoy the experience of playing the game or for people who play League of Legends all day, really just not enjoy playing the game that way. But it, it's it's weird because it's like, it's good on the level of like, it's, it's novel design. It's doing something different. It's trying a new approach. It's not good in, in the sense that it is not as pleasing to some certain parts of the player base, right? I, I, I can't speak for all the player base, but I think that's one of the big conflicts that's happening in games right now. And I feel like this is relevant to magic as well. Uh, I, I don't know as much about where the community is right now. I know that there's been a lot of you know, controversy around magic in the past like year or so. Yeah. For, I'd say for a few years, <laughs> sure. For a few, a few different reasons. Um, but I don't know if that kind of conversation is, is part of what factors into it. Yeah. I want to Kyle, I want to hear what you think makes like a game good. And then I think we can get into more about like kind of the strengths and weaknesses of, of magic and other trading card games related to video games. Yeah. I think, um, I think, I think for, for me, it's, it's a lot of different things. I think it's like, I mean, the boring answer is that it's totally subjective. Um, (laughs) 
it's, it's like, I don't know, what is a good book? You know, Chuck Palahniuk can be really good when you're 15. Uh, <laughs> not sure when you're 35, if you're reading that, you know, if it's, if that would be a good book. Um, I think for me specifically to like, I don't know, speak somewhat subjectively as well. I think something's got to hit me in a special way, uh, which I know is like nebulous, but, um, I mean, Josh and I both have been playing video games forever. Uh, it's my job. It's literally my job to like make games now. Um, it's, it's something where I've like seen so much stuff that I am like a little bit of a fiend for like something that feels new, which, and, and that newness is like, I think that I have this idea of a lot of, a lot of like indie games, especially I would describe as like, um, they're like aesthetically progressive, but mechanically traditional. So they'll have like, they'll be like the most beautiful game you've ever seen. And it's like a 2d puzzle platformer. And you're like, Mm-hmm. okay like i get yeah, it's beautiful and you look you look great when you're showing at e3 or whatever but like i've played this type of game forever and so i think that like sort of beyond aesthetics something that kind of or or something that like engages with the aesthetics in a way that is meaningful to the gameplay experience i think something something like the democratization of the way of creating games hasn't necessarily led to people developing new ideas of interaction mechanics. Um, and so I think for, for me, it's something that is doing something a little new. Yeah. Are you looking to be surprised? Like, is that something that you're hoping for these days? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think in a way it's, it's surprise a way of it is also, I mean, Josh and I talk about this a lot too, just like consideration. I think that so often in games, you have people who make games who are not considering the whole space that they're working with. I think a lot of things we have like small games now that is like a, that's a nice thing that's happened in the last 10 years. But I think even I love then small that, games, my gosh, yeah. give me 10 hours. And I, but I think even then a lot of the, like the small games are still sort of like not wholly considered. They're like, they could actually be smaller. Like I, again, Josh and I, one of our favorite games together is this game called Fitzpackerton um, by, uh, it was like Brendan Chung and like Teddy Diefenbach and like one or two other people. And the whole game, it's like five scenes and you are like packing stuff. There's like five items in each scene. You pack it into some container. Game takes like 10 minutes, 15 minutes to play. And like every part of that game, it has meaning because of that sort of reduction of stuff. Mm. And I think that, I think like when you consider games and the sort of the stuff of what's in a game, there are so many different avenues that can be uh, like, moved through. And I think most people just start and stop at aesthetics. And I would like people to go beyond that. I feel like I, this is, this is not trying to argue with you all, but one of the things I've been thinking about lately, and I'm curious about your opinion on is like, I feel like there's kind of almost the opposite as well, which is like, I feel like a lot of people are just using games as storytelling vehicles. Yeah. Like whether that's like Kentucky rod zero and something like beginner's guide. And my understanding of beginner's guide and Kentucky Road Zero, which I've played a decent amount of, is like there's sort of just like ways of communicating like a, a story and a feeling. And there's not a lot of like really important decisions you're making. And I know that the visual novel type games and just a lot of gaming I feel recently is 
I have an idea about a story I want to tell and whether it's something like braid, you know, like 10 odd years ago or something like that. And, uh, and maybe I'm oversimplifying it. I think actually those are uh, examples of games that do it well. I think that both those games are heavily considered. I think a lot of the stuff that I'm alluding to would not be things that anybody has heard of, but if you browse itch or whatever, you'll see a lot of things like this. I think do sort of use games as like effectively storytelling vehicles. I think that's fine. I mean, my personal opinion is that games are bad mediums to tell stories in. I even say this as someone who's making a game with a story. Um, (laughs) I think that they're, they're good for certain types of stories, but I think a lot of times like my ideal way to move through a narrative is not like using WASD and a mouse like that. I don't know. That's not compelling or it's compelling once, but that's not something I'm craving kind of continually. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I, I think my real answer to what makes a game good is that it really depends on what the game is. Um, and you know, that's not just talking about Metroidvanias like, or, or shooters or, uh, RPGs, you know, if you're playing all these things, it's to me, it's like, they're almost like different media. It's like, you can talk Mm -hmm. about movies, but you have an, you can have a live action movie and an anime movie. And they are both drastically different. And what makes one good is, is slightly different from what makes another one of those things good. But if I'm playing a first person shooter, I'm looking for something different than if I'm playing an RPG or what have you. And I think when it comes to a game, like the beginner's guide or, um, you know, Kentucky route zero, which I both think are really good games, uh, is that like it, we don't have to look at it as whether it's, it's a fun, whether it's fun. It's just like calling it a game is like almost reductive in a way because it's also, you know, you, you are controlling the experience, but it's also, there's a lot of reading involved. There's a lot, there's a, there's these sights and sounds that you're experiencing. That's like a main part of these games. Um, it, it's not like you're trying to shoot stuff or it's not supposed to feel good just walking around the way you would expect from say an RPG or a shooter, but you know, you have to look at the other parts of what the game is giving you and look at it that way as if you were watching a movie or something like that. I, I would lean more towards evaluating those games on that level. And I don't think, I don't think that makes them less of a game per se, but it's just, it's doing something different or it's, it's, it's approaching it from a different angle. I should say. Right. on. getting back to magic again. Like, what do you think about magic has allowed it to be such an engaging game for so many people for so long? Like there's not a lot of games that have this longevity and culture built around it. Yeah. I think that's the, it's the, like the culture is a huge part of it to me. I think the amount of options that you have is a huge part of that. Like just the amount of ways that you can play magic is nuts. And people will talk. Mm -hmm. I have a buddy who's really into magic and he plays this, just these modes that I've never heard of, or I don't even know what you call them, but I'm like, (laughs) how do you play this stuff? And then there's, you know, I have friends who play commander and stuff like that. And I'm like, Oh, that seems like a good way to, to get into playing. I would love to do drafts because to me, like, I, I like the concept of drafting, but that's such a different way of playing the game. than if you were playing commander or if you were playing construction or, or what have you, and just all the different formats that you can play. It, it's wild. That makes it a little bit more complex. But yeah, I think that there's that whole thing where you can play the game that you, you the way you want to. I think one of the other things is that this game has a history. 
which is something that a lot of other games don't have. I think the fact that there's context around stuff, that's one thing that I'm really starting to learn as I watch more chess is like, it's really cool to have a game where there is a history and there's there's stuff that is in the database of how people played this game a hundred years ago. And you can still learn from those things and still take from those things. And it adds this sense, it really bolsters the culture of the game, A, and B, it, it gives it a sense of this internal culture, which I think is one of the really fascinating things about magic to me is that people have this shared sense of coming from somewhere and knowing where their game came from and having this appreciation for it beyond this thing that can kind of just like, you know, crumble into a billion little pieces the way that a lot of modern digital games seem like they are want to do. Like they always seem like they're about to just crumble into nothing. But magic feels like it's founded on this really neat foundation, which I think is something that I really like about it too. There's a, there's like a, um, I don't know if it's like a law or like a theory. I think it's like a theory. I don't remember. It's, it's the same thing as like Occam's razor, but whatever that is called as a group. But this like theory is that things, it sounds sort of stupid to say, but it, it's that things that have been around a long time will probably continue to be around a long time. So like a chair has sort of like survived time. A chair will probably be with chairs for a very long time. This comes up a lot with um, programming languages because there's a lot of new programming languages, especially in the past five years. But a lot of people find themselves working with languages that have been around forever because they sort of, they like, they, they gather this, um, I don't know, like you could, you could call it like a culture, basically expertise that gets built against it forever. Things get built on it, whatever. I feel like magic is sort of like that. It's a game that kind of predates like games culture to a degree um, and people have now grown into it and have kids who are now playing it. Um, and I would, I would say that it's got a, this big factor of just, it's been around forever and it has, it's had the benefit of having really good custodians, but at the same time, like, I think you can't really discount that. Like it, it has like a huge first mover advantage. It's sort of like the first game to have done this to this scale. And like the other thing is that, um, like, when, when you think about like the stuff of magic, it's actually like very simple in terms of its pieces. You are like playing cards that have rules on them. The designer of like space Kim and other stuff, Zach Tronics has this book called Zach like that he writes through his design thoughts in. And one thing he talks about is cargo cult games, which are mm -hmm. games that people make kind of like with or without knowledge of other games and trying to emulate them. And I think that magic has this really special thing, which is that like every kid has probably invented magic without knowing that magic exists. So something about it being this formula of like, I am playing my card that has rules on it against your card that has rules on it. And like magic sort of did that first. I don't know if it's actually mm -hmm. first, but it did it and it continues to do it very well. So it's not a huge jump to say like, Hey, my game I made, there's actually a real version of this and it's like cool. And I can play it with friends and like, it is a community. So I think it's, it's sort of got this like cultural cachet and being a design that I think is very 
like even if you don't know how to like quote unquote play magic and you haven't read the like 600 page PDF of the rules, like <laughs> you kind of can pantomime it and get a sense of what it should be like to play. So yeah. I think that it kind of gathers this sort of it, it, basically magic is that game. Now it is that game that you play that has with cards of rules against each other. Um, and so it will continue to be that game probably forever. Uh, Here's hoping. One of the things that I and we talked about this, you know, about half an hour ago or so, which is like, what are some of the things that people have contentions with related to magic? And one of them is kind of the dismantling of the competitive scene around magic. And there's a there's a few, I think, pressures on that. One is the return on investment that Hasbro slash Wizards of the Coast was seeing. One, of course, was was COVID. Uh, Another was wanting to get into the digital realm of things like Arena and competing with things like Hearthstone and having like a different digital platform altogether. And for a very long time, Magic had that strong competitive scene around it, right? And that was part of the lore and part of the culture that was built up, like this the competition around it and the, the pros and the celebrities. And I think we see a lot of the development of esports around video games in like the last decade plus has been really enormous. Like sort of some, like at the same time when, when magic is dismantling what competition looks like, like what are your thoughts about like what competition and esports are doing for gaming and like what they could add to something like magic even get out, get out. <laughs> They're ruining these games. No, I to, honestly, I esports and Twitch and like all of these communities that have sprouted up, they're great. Um, but I think as far as what they do to individual games, they turn it into they turn games into content furnaces where you all of a sudden, yeah. like what was beautiful about a game like Magic back in the day is like you didn't have everyone working together to solve it. At the same time, you didn't have, it wasn't this puzzle that was done, finished with in two weeks. And then all you ever see is mono yeah. red on ladder or whatever for three months or whatever. The, sorry if I'm like totally getting everything about magic wrong. There's probably been a time. I mean, you know, that's, that's exactly hundred percent right. Is that, you know, especially now it's a content, it's a content furnace and stuff gets solved quickly. And that's just what's going to happen when you have these massive communities online that are sharing information. They're telling, they're optimizing decks. They're figuring everything out, especially within a really limited format. Um, it, it just screws everything up. And that, that's the whole goal is to just like devour the content, spit it back out and have the solved game state and do what what you will with that and the the response to that is like this really it, it's appealing to the lowest common denominator like we have to make more stuff or we have to make more novel stuff the drive isn't to like just make something that is going to be fun to play and or interesting it's it's just to like to appease the masses which is which is good in some senses, but I think it's like, like give us more stuff to it's solve. Bad, almost, yeah, exactly. Right? Like, exactly. When it's like, which, it, which first of all requires a fundamental paradigm shift toward looking at your game as something that is going to be solved, which is a terrible way to start looking at your own game. And is is what you kind of have to do when you are in this ecosystem 
this is like, um, there was a, it's just some podcast I was listening to was talking about, um, like board games and playing board games online and how, uh, I think like, especially like really big war games that take six, seven, eight hours to play people in their lifetimes would play like this game three times or something. And now with stuff like there's a thing called Vassal, which is, I don't know if you don't know what Vassal is, it's sort of like, imagine like a worse version of magic online, but it can like play any game you throw at it. People are able to play huge war games online, like, you know, three times a week, uh, can just move it through it quickly. It's like fast, it's digital. And what's happening is that people are realizing that like a lot of these games are not designed for that amount of scrutiny. I think Josh, you're like exactly right that there's, we don't know how to design games in a way that are impenetrable or at least like are able to stave off this type of sort of content need. I think like something like, I don't know, Keyforge is interesting in this regard where it actually shifts the meta onto like just playing well. Although some people would say maybe that's not the case, but like, like it moves the decks or moves the play towards execution instead of like a solving model. Um, something like that is sort of interesting, but I agree that like, there's a, I think that we're bad, especially when it comes to card games with understanding how to design them in a way where they can't just like be solved or like the opposite has to happen, which is that you have to slow down your cadence of release to make people say like, Hey, maybe the meta can actually shift instead of just being lazy. Cause I think what, I think what happens is people, something solidifies in the first month and people are like, well, that's it. I'm just going to play that for the next two months. Cause you know, who, whoever, whoever said there's a new patch in two months. So like, why try to like go against the grain here when I can just wait for the meta to shift in a way that I hope swings in my favor. And I think that that, and that's like a double-edged sword because if you push that away, people will drop your game. So is your game actually good enough to keep people through that dark period where the meta is really bad? Like, I, I think the last thing I'll say is I think often like Josh talking about smash brothers earlier, like there's a tier chart for melee that exists over the course of like 15 years and people move on that tier chart. Uh, like someone like ice climbers, something happens at like Evo and they shoot up on the tier chart. Um, whereas for like three years, like no one played ice climbers and like, that doesn't <laughs> happen anymore. No one has the time to sit around and just like experiment with ice climbers for a year to see maybe they'll be better but, than Fox. So there, in addition to that, like there are also fundamental portions of the physical card game experience that have broken by virtue of the fact that this stuff is now digital and it's online. One of which is just like the way that I used to play physical card games when I was younger. Like I used to play a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh and Pokemon and stuff like that, which is you, the whole idea of collecting cards is not like something that mm -hmm. even exists. Like, do you remember when you would hear about a card that existed and that you didn't previously <laughs> know about existing? And then you were like, what? Yeah. Or like you would just, you would open a pack and there would be, a, I, I didn't even know why cards reveals like when they show you pictures of cards why they were called spoilers you do people realize that there's an etymology they call these things spoilers because there was a time when you would find out these cards existed through opening a pack yeah or like someone played it against you for the yes. first time and you're like well, you're like what like what's mahamoni dijin <laughs> this is not a thing that exists anymore not only that but it's like you know how they say like a lot of Americans feel like they're just like a temporarily em embarrassed millionaires. 
millionaires. Well, every <laughs> card player now is just a temporarily cardless pro. You know, like they, <laughs> it almost feels like you you have access to every card and every deck because you know it exists. You already know what the best decks are, and all you have to do is get those cards, and then you're you're good enough to be in the league, yeah. one of the top players. Like you do not interface with these games the same way anymore. The things that are fun about them are no longer there. Instead, it's it's just this again. It's a puzzle that just you need to solve. And sorry to keep bringing up chess here. But what I am finding <laughs> endlessly fascinating about that game is that there's so much depth and so much history. Yes, you could you could look at I've I've been doing this thing where I imagine like the the London system and the Karo Khan and the you know the King's Indian, all these like little ways of starting the, the game as like almost cards, right? Where you you can collect them in your knowledge, as it were. Um and you can build up a collection, but like the game just keeps ramping up with the amount of things that you can know and the way that you can like do it. But there's also strategy within that of like learning what the tactics are and learning like these sequences that you can play and learning to think about the board in a different way. This is a level of depth to a seemingly simple game that has given it longevity over the course of literal hundreds of years. And I I, I want to say one of the ways out of this is to make the game more complex. I have no clue how to do that, but Magic already has ways of doing that, uh, which is just like making different ways of playing with the rules, you know, like the, I think that's one of the things about the formats. I think they, that's something that they should really lean into is just the different amount of ways that you can engage with the game, the game and add more paths to complexity. The problem is that you have this other part of magic, is, which is the exclusivity thing, the difficulty of acquiring cards, which to me is, is one of the things that maybe is holding back collectible card games. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a lot to digest, and I mean, we could talk about this for a lot longer, <laughs> for sure. But one, I mean, what is interesting is I see different games leaning into different aspects of that in different ways. Like they're sort of everyone has you know in the '90s we had the huge wave of TCGs, C CCGs, right, following and trying to be the next Magic, and you you had your you had your you know. Uh, uh, the mask trading card game or something like that. <laughs> you're like, well, you know, <laughs> some, you know, Marvel type stuff, but the magic has kind of existed through that. But I feel like now we're seeing a newer wave of card games, like both digital and paper. Like we Hearthstone was of course, maybe the first big digital competitor. And we've seen things like e eternal and we've seen things like legends of Runeterra and now we're seeing sort of a new world of paper competitors and things like Flesh and Blood and like even stuff like MetaZoo, if you've heard of that. And I feel like some of them are trying to be like Legends of Runeterra, which is like, we're, we're free, quote unquote free, right? And then it's like the riot model of, of everything else that's fun around the cards is going to get us our money. 
and like whether it's skins or uh, promotional type stuff, but everything you need to play is sort of handed to you just by playing, right? And that doesn't happen very well in, in Magic. And then I think there's games like Flesh and Blood, which are trying to go back to the OG Magic environment, which is like, this is paper only. You are going to have to pay for these cards and play in real life, and we're not going to have a digital environment for this because we want it to be competitive and have a, a way for people to, to win and, you know, test their metal against other people in real life and look their you know opponents in the eye and not just have like some screen name across from them type thing. And then there's weird things where it's like gods unchained, where it's like, these are digital assets that are NFTs, right? Where it's like this, this new idea of what ownership of an asset even is. And like what it means to like have a digital asset that can be bought and sold by players. And I guess where I'm going with all of this is like, where would, where do you two see card games going in the future? And where would you like card games to be going? I think there was a, there's a really great piece a while ago um, that was published specifically about video games um, and video game marketing. And the title of the piece was, um, your target audience doesn't exist. And it was looking at uh, sort of like the economics of Steam, which is the, if people don't know, is like a games platform you can buy games on. And you look at like the majority of people on Steam. And so Steam is huge. It's like, I want to say it's like 280 million people. It is a, is like a lot of people use Steam. And of like, I'm going to make up some percentages here, but I think the magnitude is correct. It's something like less than like, it's like less than 10% of people like buy more than like three games and then less than like 5% of people buy more than like 10 games. And you look at like the actual play numbers and people play like what's free or what their game is. So people play Dota, people play Counter-Strike, people play Final Fantasy 14 or whatever. And the, the thing that they were talking about specifically in the article is that this like this conception of like siphoning off people to come play your game because it's like, like magic, like doesn't happen. It's, it is like, it is people who play magic will play magic. People who play magic are not looking for other games that are like, maybe like, I don't know, 1% of people who like really miss the old days care about old magic, but like people who play magic will play magic, whatever. Um, I think the, what I would, what I don't like seeing in card games is people going after that. And I think that's something like Hearthstone and Runeterra, I don't think they siphoned the magic audience. I think maybe if they siphoned it, it was a little bit of people who wanted a digital card game experience, but both of those games are huge in part because they're built by giant companies with like huge IP. So like the Blizzard audience plays Blizzard and World of Warcraft games and will yeah, they'll play Hearthstone. And then the like Runeterra, obviously League of Legends is the biggest game in the world. So Riot has like a built-in audience that's like the size of Steam that will just play whatever you throw at that launcher. So I think that those are like, those are not, I, I don't see like Magic losing market share because those games are so big. And I think that unless you're doing something on that scale to just remediate a digital card game experience with your IP, where you sort of go beyond that is like, I don't know. I think like just just so I can give Josh some airtime. I think that what I, I've really enjoyed like fantasy flights model of like the living card game as like a concept where that's <laughs> are you going to say that? I was literally <laughs> just going to bring up Android Netrunner. 
<laughs> which yeah oh man r.i.p i know yeah well i mean netrunner but or like arkham horror the card game or like the lord yeah, of the rings a cool game, game system where the concept is about the experience of playing through a situation that is uh like mediated through cards and there is like a deck building cooperative semi-competitive mode to that but the premise is not like head-to-head competitive magic style combat like i don't play runeterra because i play magic like i do not need I like maybe someone is just like card fiend. They play it all. They, you know, they're just, they just love that. But that's like such a small percentage of people, especially because the sunk cost is real. You're like, I know what all these keywords do in magic. I like know magic's weird lore. I play magic. I don't play Runeterra or Hearthstone or whatever. And so I think like for me, where I want to see digital card games go is actually break outside of this concept of like purely competitive magic style play. Yeah, I was, I had talked about culture and why I think that that's important and something that magic should work to leverage. And I think I I just want to double down on that, which is to say that, Kyle, you were talking about what Riot is doing with Runeterra and whatnot, but Riot has done so much to build a culture around its games. And, you know, if you look at the immensely popular arcane right now, like people know who characters in League of Legends are. Like you have Caitlyn and Jinx and Vi are like becoming household names for people who have never even played League of Legends. And A, I think that it builds uh, an environment around your game and or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you're creating that that helps people get immersed into the kind of culture that surrounds your game, which is a big, which is not something that I think should be underestimated. Magic has its own culture. I think I would not say that the culture currently revolves around the aesthetic or the characters like who, I don't know, like I feel like Nicole Bolas or Teferi are, you know, they're cool characters, but I, I don't know if they are being leveraged well enough right now. I don't know if they have been like modernized to the point where they're going to like bring people to the game more. But I think developing that culture is important because magic's culture of like these people who used to play it when they were younger and, and who go to these tournaments and who can relate about the mechanics of the game. That's one of the strongest things that it currently has, but I think they can also use the culture of the game itself and the way it's designed and the way it looks and the way it feels. I think that's something that they could develop more right now. I think it also Mm. speaks to magics. Like the thing I was saying earlier about things that have been around for a while, that continue to be around for a while where like, I think wizards has just totally dropped the ball with like magic as like a property. Like they had, they're like this giant loss leader in the competitive card game space and have done like nothing like I think this concept of like even like when transmedia was like a big concept in like the late 2000s or whatever or like ARGs or like whatever they're doing such a bad job and magic is still so big and I think that like yeah. they can basically yeah. just sort of like if they wanted to they could sit back release sets forever and it's fine and and I know they're like changing some stuff and they like are pushing like four new games. They axed one of them to try to do this like riot style thing. But it's like, I think like Josh, you're saying there's like, no one cares about who Teferi is or like <laughs> this, like they're like weird, like 
Yeah, they've done such a bad job making their superhero superheroes. There's just anything. Like, there's just, like, no... Like, they do some, like, lore posts or whatever. Shout out Roy Graham. Uh, you're doing a great job, Roy. <laughs> um, but it's, like, no one cares. Like, there's no... Nobody cares. Like, unless you're a magic person, like, there is just, like, zero outreach. And, um, like, I know people groan when we talk... When people talk about inclusivity. Uh, but that's important, too. Like... You got a lot of people out there who are not men. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the thing, right? Like the game is like predicated on this, like, like directly competitive, aggressive, even if you're playing a control deck, like a weenie, like you're, you're, <laughs> you're fighting someone directly. And that is like a very specific player archetype. And I think what riot has, and riot knows this. And it's also why when they released arcane, they released a, like a PVE like battle game where you just are fighting the computer and it's like not even fighting. There's no, there's no like nasty MOBA-ness to it. If you're not that kind of person, you already found yourself to a MOBA. And it's, it's weird. Like I I've played Valorant like a couple of months ago, I was pretty into it and I'm trying to get back into it, but I feel like I played with and against more females and women than I have in years of playing magic. I had that experience like, too. <laughs> like, like, I mean, I've definitely have played against women and I've played against, you know, plenty of women and uh, at game stores and tournaments and stuff like that. But I just feel like I've, I've, I engaged with, with more women percentage wise in like the games I was playing of Valorant just so quickly. And that's, and maybe that's just because it's like, like you said, like it's not, it's, it, it can attract different kind of archetypes. Mm-hmm. It has different kind of characters that you can identify with. And I think that it just has a different culture around it. That's not predicated upon like dudes in a game store. Well, this is what like sends me when you see riot, even riot talk about like, we got to detoxify the MOBA. And it's like, you can't do that. You, you, that is not a possible thing to do because that model intrinsically lends itself to this kind of discourse. Like you're, you're building, it's like people who are like want to detoxify call of duty. And it's like, you're running around shooting people in the head with machine guns. <laughs> like that is your problem. It's not because you need like better anti cheat or whatever. It's because your game itself is built to like breed aggression inside of its player base. Right. I think that this is like, this is the thing that makes it like, I think it's, it's like a mental block like these companies have where they're like, well, I can save my MOBA. And it's like, you, you can't, you, it, it won't work. There's this wow streamer Asmon gold. Who's like now moved to uh, final fantasy 14 largely. And he was talking about how like, you know, final fantasy is always pray 14 is always praised for its community and how people are really nice. And he was like, well, yeah, like you give them all these incentives to be nice. It's like, it, it's not, it's not that you have a nice community. It's that you, you give them things for being nice. And it's like, I'm just sitting there thinking like, would you rather have that or a community that incentivizes you yeah. to be a total jerk? Because when you have a community that incentivizes people being exclusive, when that uh, incentivizes people to be jerks to each other, that incentivizes people to exclude one another and to like, uh, Lord themselves over the lesser players they're going to do that. And in some cases, it'll trickle over into behavior that is even worse than that. If you encourage people to do the opposite, to be nice to each other, to like share with one another, if you incentivize that type of behavior, sometimes you're going to get 
behavior that trickles over into the opposite, where it's like people are being nice for reasons that they don't even need to be, which I experience in Final Fantasy XIV all the time. And I think that's mm-hmm. a philosophy of video game design in, in today's world that people don't really imagine existing. And I think is one of the more powerful things that I've experienced with Final Fantasy XIV is that you can design a game for the community that you want to create and the community that you want to see and not just for the people who are out there playing your game already. You can mm-hmm. try to make things better. And, and I think that there's a lot of space there for Magic the Gathering. And I don't see them as being like inflexible with that sort of thing. I, I feel like Wizards of the Coast has the flexibility to kind of grow in that direction. And I think the Magic the Gathering community wants to grow. I think that you know, from what I've seen of the community, the people I know who play Magic the Gathering, like, I feel like it is a community that wants to get bigger and welcome more people into it. But I don't know. Yeah. It, it, you have to be willing to see the game change in that direction. Right on. I feel like we could just make like a whole episode of the dive down right now, but I do. <laughs> I, I promise. I promised you all 60 to 75 minutes and we're around 75. So I'm going to, I want to ask you maybe one sort of final question and I think what we were talking about sort of leads into it. And what are your all hopes for the future of video games and like gaming and gaming on the whole? Like this is like a 30 minute question, right? But like, what are you, what are you hoping for like in the next few years or 10 years of like games and games culture? I want the community to grow. I want it to include people that like we've had over the past decade, this weird like friction of people wanting video games to be more popular, but also being annoyed that it means that you need to make space for like women and like people who are of different abilities and stuff like that. And I think that we're starting to realize that actually it doesn't need to make games worse necessarily. I think some games have gotten worse. I think that some of the transitions have been awful. And I think it's short-sighted to say that that hasn't happened. I think that some games have like absolutely failed at bringing people into the fold. And because of that, it makes it look like the goal itself was bad to begin with when just the execution was off. But I think that games can grow in this direction of being played by everyone. And I think that it can, that can also make games more interesting. So what I want to see is a video game space that is more welcoming that, and that uses different, different audiences to build different experiences that we've never seen before that are more engaging and more fun in ways that we've never experienced before. And that are like good, that are both inclusive and good. You know, I I don't want just inclusivity for inclusivity's sake. I think that both of those things can enrich one another and I want to see it happen. I think for me, I'm like, I mean, Josh said the nice one. I agree with everything Josh, Josh said, but I'm also like, I mean, my answer in some ways is I'm not sure what the future, I don't know that there's a future for video games. I'm like way more pessimistic about it. I think especially like, being so close to criticism for so long and like watching video games for 20 years, like the, the medium doesn't want to move forward. I think it, it's like people like you look at the biggest releases of this year, you have age of empires two, two in the form of age of empires four, you have basically halo infinite three, two, 
and the like guys of Halo Infinite. And last year you had Warcraft 3 remastered. You've got Resident Evil 2 remastered. Like we're, we're remediating the greatest hits and it feels like a little bit of like a victory lap, even if it's like the worst victory there ever was. Where it, I, I make this joke a lot on bad end, but like it feels like we've stopped. Like we we do not know where we go next. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not like a believer in this like concept of the metaverse as some like ridiculous concept but like where game where video games go i think like i don't know man like i don't know about they they won't <laughs> go away right in the same way that like people still play dnd before fifth edition came out like it will still be a thing but this this like this time and place for it to be this dominant cultural object that is like bigger than hollywood or whatever i think is like going to go away i think we will start seeing like I don't know. I'd say I don't believe in the metaverse, but like, I do think like the future. And I think it's sort of related to what Josh is talking about is that I think more games will start to feel more like experiences that are social and collaborative. Like I, I think like this sounds so stupid, but the like in blade runner 2049, that like woman who makes those worlds, like that's sort of the future of video games or like the, the tech itself is this, this way to experience something. And it's, it's less about like play experience and interactivity and achievements and headshots. Like, I think that will still be a current, but the sort of future that I see kind of taking off is that, and like what we're doing now is like, I don't want to buy it like any triple a game besides like a dark souls game. Like I just don't, <laughs> I just, I'm just done. Like I do you don't want to do the adult coloring book. I just don't want to do that. Like I'm done. Like I, and I, I'm not the only person, right? Like people younger than me also are having the same experience. And so like, I'm not sure where it goes from there. Like, and so this, this sort of current that we're in now, I feel like is we're in this time where I think a lot of what we take for granted is like triple a and stuff will go away. Also in part, there's a whole different podcast, but like AAA itself is like totally unsustainable. <laughs> so it, it, it is destined to crash. It is not. And that's not even me being like inflammatory. Like it, it doesn't work. It relies on like very specific sets of scenarios to exist. And if that goes away, the locus of video game culture goes away, which means like all that's left is like the indies or whatever. And that's just going to be a thing. I think your opinion would be a lot less pessimistic if you'd ever hung out in a five stack of Valorant friends for the better part of a <laughs> pandemic oh, year. That's the metaverse. Five I stack mean, th that's been some of my best a good, experience. A good Valorant The reason so why good. I say said League of Legends favorite game is because like I made so many friends through that and it's like such a social experience. And I think that's really one of the greatest experiences in video games right now. And I don't think Kyle has had much exposure to that side of things. Oh man, no, I played, when I got like really into Valheim <laughs> earlier this year and was playing it till oh, like yeah. 4 a.m. for like a week, that was like the best video game experience I've that's had in a long time. That's a community, right? Although my last thing I'll say, I know we're at time is that I'm finding way more to love in board games than video games. Like I've sort of shifted most of my play experiences to board game stuff. And like all the things that I used to love about video games, I'm finding like that and more in board games. So I think that like, that's where, and you look at like actual game designers, a lot of video game people are migrating to board games now because it's sort of, it's a more like quote unquote pure design space, but then also there's just like so many opportunities there and it's more inclusive to some degree. Um, so yeah. Thanks Kyle. Y'all I, Josh, Kyle, I really appreciate 
you both coming on. I've, uh, I respect your podcast and the larger superculture community. Thanks a ton for joining uh, me on this bonus episode. I hope all the listeners enjoyed it. I'm sure they did. If people want to continue hearing your voices, hearing your thoughts, interacting with you, where can they find you on the net? Twitter.com slash bad end podcast. Um, Patreon.com slash bad end. And your podcast is on all the usual podcast outlets and it's just bad end, right? Oh, you can also look at us on YouTube. We're on bad end podcast. We do videos now. We do so videos you can, you can now. You see our faces and stuff. And clips from the games, which is, that's, it's, it's fun. That's important. All right. Well, that wraps up this bonus episode. Uh, if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to us. You get those episodes as soon as they drop. If you want to leave a rating and review on your Apple podcast app or something like that. If you want to reach out to us, twitter.com slash the dive down, all one word. You can also go to podinbox.com slash the dive down. Leave us an audio message. We can, uh, we'll play that on the pod. If you want to support us, patreon.com slash the dive down. Mana traders, you know them. You probably use them 15% off your first two months by using code the dive down 2021. And as always, thanks, bands, Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music for this three years now. And until next week, get out there and reach a bad end. (laughs) 